Why is recorded in front of a live studio audience. We need to record an intro for this very special episode. Which I feel like we also need to, or I need to stop beginning our very special episodes by saying, we need to record an intro for our very special episode. Well, but I mean, I mean, if I don't have direction, how can I not follow? I know, I know. (laughs) Um, We just want to say to our listeners, uh, happy life day. Happy To you and yours. And uh, we will be giving you the full interview uh, of our conversation with Bruce Valanche uh, sometime in the new year, but we couldn't let this uh, important celebration go by without marking it in some way. And uh, it's been such a crummy year. You know, I feel like uh, you need to celebrate what you can and, and lean into the good things and and talking to Bruce Valanche about writing uh, for Wookiees is something that I think we all need these days. I agree. And reminiscing about the uh, virtual reality with Dion Warwick. That's true. Yes. We didn't even um, get to be Arthur. I think it was Diane Carroll, wasn't Diane it? Diane Carroll. It was Diane Carroll. It was. Star of Dynasty. Uh, oh, here we go. Um, but... As we wrap up the year, we would like to say to all of our listeners, thank you so much. Because if you don't listen to the stupid show, we can't do the stupid show. True. And that's not a explaining math to you. So you can then retrofit that where <laughs> we go off the air. <laughs> no. I noticed the other day we have like 10 listeners in Dublin. Do you know someone in Dublin? Please say no. Because I like to think it's Bono, it The is. Edge. Paul McGinnis and like the ghost of Oscar Wilde. Are, definitely. Are no, Oscar Wilde is absolutely into our show. Oscar Wilde would be our biggest fan. And uh, I have zero doubt that Larry Mullen Jr. would love our show. That's true. So Larry and, and the rest of your friends, thank you so much for listening. We love all of our listeners equally, but if you're one of these 10 folks in Dublin, you're, you're doing the Lord's work. So thank us. you. Yes. Uh, happy life day, happy whatever you're celebrating, you know, and, and you probably won't be going over the river through the woods this year, but maybe sit by your tree, just stare out the window, take some time, and hopefully uh, hearing us talk about Wookiees is, is a little break from everything. So, be. thank you. It should be, right? Right, it should drown out yeah. something. Exactly. So thank you. Uh, we love you. And I guess I, all I have going through my head is drive safe, which is really a bad thing to tell people, a bunch of people on lockdown. This is why with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. That's it. I'm turning back. <laughs> I know your family's waiting. I know it's an important day. All right, we'll give it a try. I'll set your coordinates. You won't jump far. I'll get you back there in time, pal. Trust me. Our only hope now is I'll run that Imperial garbage scow, though. I'm going to light speed. That's the spirit. You'll be celebrating Life Day before you know it. Happy Life Day to you and yours. Thank you so much. Is it coming up? It's-
Tomorrow's Festivus. Exactly. Which is what George was hoping Life Day would become. Festivus for the rest of us. Yes. But uh, it was not to be. However, uh, there is May the 4th, which has kind of become Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. Yeah. So uh, that, that may be edging towards what George was hoping to have accomplished. What was that like? I mean, it's such legend now, that show, that special. And you were one of four people writing on it. Is that correct? Sounds right. Yeah. Pat and Lenny and um, Ken and Mitzi and me, I guess. And then there may have been somebody else. who remember. I'd better look up the IMDb credit. <laughs> it was a small and hearty band. And it's a very interesting group, uh, cast of characters on screen as well. What do you remember about putting that, that show together? Well, first of all, it was 1978. And so we were all chemically altered. And uh, as we, if we if we'd known what we were doing would be spoken of 45 years later, we would have paid closer attention. <laughs> but uh, I, people hate when I say this, but uh, there were a lot of people at the time who did not think Star Wars was all that much. It had not become the the uh, internet the Scientology of nerds, <laughs> which it subsequently became. Because this was it was one movie. And he was preparing to shoot the empire. Mm-hmm. So it was, this was a, a device on his part to stir the pot, to, to sell uh, toys, action figures, and to keep the, the movie in the public zeitgeist because it had been released uh, 18 months before. So for CBS, it was a, a way to latch on to a brand that was big. I mean, it had, you know, it had demonstrated an audience and, uh, it was also a way to, to uh, throw a lot of CBS stars on a television show that would get a lot of eyeballs looking at it. And they would cross promote the shows that those CBS stars were on. So it, it was to everybody's benefit to do the show, but nobody uh, ever thought we were creating high art <laughs> or any, or low art for that matter. Uh, and uh, the, the show it got the, the usual mix of reviews and it got the numbers were okay. They weren't brilliant, but they were okay. It was the weekend before Thanksgiving on a Friday night and they were all right. But, and it went away and covered years later, 20 years later, maybe when the internet took hold. And by that time, Star Wars had become a quasi religion and people who were devoted to it would comb the internet looking for any tidbit and they found this special and uh they couldn't believe it because they they because it's such a piece of shit they couldn't believe that george had actually been involved with it uh they thought somehow we were you know raiders of the lost lucas we come in and we had we pilloried this thing he and when they found out of course that it was his his idea and that he he had was, was intimately involved at the beginning, uh, they they felt betrayed. So uh, George, they, you know, George got really put upon a lot when this thing happened, and he tried his best to suppress the whole thing. And we we just looked at it, you know, uh, from afar, and, and nobody really cared except that every time he did a subsequent star, he always said that he, was, he had six movies he was going to do, and it was a little hiatus between the first three and the second three. But he keeps churning stuff out. Every time there's a new Star Wars thing, uh, uh, the old show surfaces. And he he will never own it, 
but he kind of now just ignores it. I mean, even uh, I mean, they even let the, the Lego people do a Star Wars special because actually, I don't know how much real because it's a Disney thing. He's now sold himself to Disney. So when Disney said we want to do this, I'm sure he didn't stand in their way. But uh, of course, that because it's it's a re, not a remake of the special, but because it's another show with the name Star Wars Holiday Special, the old show comes up again, once again, and here we are talking about it. So uh, it's uh, if I'd known, as I say, going into it that this is going to be what I would be talking about 45 years later, uh, I really would have uh, I, I would have been you know I would have had more caffeine when I was there. <laughs> I would have taken I would have taken deeper, darker notes, <laughs> but it was I mean, I did a lot of, you know, I'm writing a book actually now about how I wrote the worst television shows in history and lived. <laughs> and uh, it was it was one of those shows. It was another one of those star studded specials with a gimmick that were inane. And, uh, and but it was a three network town at the time. Maybe Fox had started. I'm not sure, but um, so, so it was. It was a, a common kind of thing on TV, and it's often when I talk to people who who were not born yet. Maybe you two are in that group. Uh, it's we it's there. unusual. It's, you what? <laughs> I was there. I watched it when, I, there, when yeah. it aired. <laughs> yeah. Well, there. then you know. I mean, there were a million variety television shows, and there, uh, every every night there was something, and there were these these specials that were that uh, to attract an audience that wasn't normally watching those shows. So it was just another one in the in those lines of things. I thought it was particularly kind of ridiculous. What made it even stranger is. George had, had told me he had 10 stories that he had um, uh, written, original Star Wars stories, and he was going to film six of them. And before he, uh, he developed in other areas. And this was the last story that he hadn't developed. He actually had uh, developed Bubba Fett as a full-length animated movie that he could not get anybody to do, believe it or not. And... Uh, um, and the, this, there was this story, and he sold this story to CBS as a variety special because they, they <coughs> pardon me, sniffed around and discovered that CBS was interested. So he sold it to them, <coughs> and I, I don't think he watched variety television. George never struck me as that kind of guy. I don't think he was looking at, like, Wayne Newton at SeaWorld or some <laughs> of my, my bigger triumphs. He was, uh, I don't think he was aware of what a network variety special was. I believe that he thought that he had given him uh, an outline uh, for a show, an original musical. And there was going to be a lot of music in it. And if, in fact, that was his intention, it was bizarre that the the story he sold them involved as leading characters, the Wookiees. (laughs) Because the Wookiees don't sing, the Wookiees don't dance. The Wookiees don't do acrobatic. The Wookiees don't, you know, the Wookiees don't make any sound that sounds like English or any other known language. It's just lots of, and there's, so you have to have somebody translating because uh, back then uh, you couldn't use subtitles. Subtitles were anathema. It was, it was, it was why you felt the audience would never read subtitles. Now, if you go see one of the later Star Wars movies, 
their two-thirds subtitle. Lupita Nyong'o doesn't say a single word of English in any of those Star Wars movies that she's in. She speaks some kind of gobbledygook, and somebody there are subtitles. And so the world has changed in that regard. Um, so, so we were we were working in a uh, old school variety show situation with this thing that uh, was certainly not going to bend to our will. I mean, we had to serve whatever it was that was there. So it always there was an uneasy combination of what will the Star Wars stuff be and what can we put in that will be variety TV that will serve the, uh, the, the God that we were worshiping at the time. <laughs> and so it, it felt crazy every day because, you know, you walk in and you say, okay, uh, we, we got... Uh, the silverback whoopee, uh, Chewbacca's father, puts on the virtual reality helmet, and what does he see? What is his fantasy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, I mean, that was the kind of task that we had. Uh, and, but I will say, George, uh, there, George had read a lot of science fiction, and, and I did love the virtual reality helmet. Nobody had done that before. It, it, had been, it had appeared in a bunch of science fiction novels that I'd read when I was a kid, but I think he'd read them too. And uh, it was a great, it's a great gimmick, but finding out what we were going to put in there was uh, trial and error. So is that, is that, is that a short enough answer to your question? (laughs) Very much so. Yes. Yes. So um, I guess the question then becomes, who's the easier person to write for Chewbacca or Donnie and Marie? (laughs) Well, you know, people have often said to me, uh, uh, the kind of stuff I do, it's kind of like Shakespeare, you know. Um, he wrote Hamlet and he wrote uh, The Comedy of Errors. And they say, well, you're comparing yourself to Shakespeare? I said, no, I would never do that. But he never had to write a two-spot for Donnie and Marie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so all, he had Rosencrantz and Gilbenstern, but that was another story. Right. Uh, it, was, it was much easier writing them. The, the, the obstacles there were that they were very young. And Marie turned 18 in the course of the show, and that was when she was allowed to take a more adult direction. But you have to understand, we were dealing with uh, the, <laughs> the Mormon cabal, I call them. They were, <laughs> the Mormons ran the show because uh, the Osmonds are you know, very devout, and uh, they entered the Salt Lake City, and everything had to go through the elders. And their list of things that Mormons can't do is shocking. I mean, I'm Jewish, and the list of things I'm not supposed to do is pretty lengthy, but nothing compared to the Mormon list. The Mormon list is longer than any red carpet you've ever seen. I mean, we couldn't say coffee break. They don't drink coffee. They don't uh, take any caffeine. People on that show would take milk breaks. I mean, you can't say coffee break or tea break. There's no tea time. I mean, it it was a staggering bunch of things that uh, could not be used. So we were always working around uh, what they would let us do. So it was very, uh, it was all very, I mean, I I tell a story which is absolutely true. Uh, I was friendly with Michael Feinstein. I'm still friendly with Michael Feinstein. At the time, he was working for Ira Gershwin, the great lyricist. (laughs) And uh, he, um, I got to know Ira a little bit towards the end of his life. And uh, in, a part of Marie's kind of, you know, uh, coming out, getting older, being an adult process, uh, I was looking for a song for her to do. And uh, the Gershwins wrote a song for a musical called Girl Crazy, and it's called Treat Me Rough. And in the movie, uh, it was written for the stage, but in the movie, Mickey Rooney does it with a bunch of 
uh, girls who were all like four feet taller than he is, which was not hard to find because, you know, he was rather petite. And uh, and it said, treat me rough, must my hair, I don't care. And I thought, this would be fine. You know, this would be funny for Marie to come out there and sing, you know, treat me rough and all that. And uh, uh, and Ira thought it was, said that he loves her. Oh, she's very talented. Let her do it. That's great. So I took it to them and they said, oh, no, she can't sing these lyrics. This is terrible. And I had to go back to Ira and say, she can't, they won't let her sing the lyrics to two adults. And they, and they, he said, well, I'll change a few of them. And I thought to myself, you were what? This is Ira Gershwin. This is Porgy and Bess. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so I went back with the the new lyric, which he was happy to do. And they said, oh, no, it's still, it's still too much. And I said, perhaps I'm not clear about this. Ira Gershwin (laughs) has personally rewritten this song. This has never happened in the history of the musical theater. Uh, they said, no, sorry, not interested. You know, and I thought this, this was like, you know, the brick wall I was going up against. So I really didn't care, but uh, I was personally offended. Yeah, I'm personally offended. <laughs> I was personally offended. I brought another song in uh, that my, uh, I have two good friends. This song is very name droppy, but I've been around forever. Melissa Manchester and Carol Barra-Sager had written a song called Coming from the Rain. Mm-hmm. And recording it, and uh, uh, I said, "Could I bring it to Marie?" And she said, "Sure, if Marie likes it and sings it. You know, my record's coming out. Couldn't hurt, because uh, Maria wasn't going to record it." Uh, brought that in, and they said, "No, she can't sing that because this is about a woman who accepts her husband coming back uh, after an adulterous affair." And I'm, you know, I'm looking at the lyric, thinking, "Where does that in there?" <laughs> it's just, you know, whatever happened, maybe they had a fight. He went out. She said, come in from the rain. It's it's cozy and warm in here, and I want you back. No, she was not allowed to sing that. Wow. So I was really frustrated. So then, finally, I came in with a song that had just, uh, just broken onto the Hot 100 by Elton John. Don't let the sun go down on me. <laughs> and I brought the, that they loved. That they thought, oh, that Elton John, he's wonderful. We love, it's terrific. And so there I was in the, in the on the set, I was in the uh, recording booth. I'm standing with the network censor, Mrs. Futterman, whose job was very easy on the Osborne Show because they censored everything. <laughs> she didn't have to. She didn't have to lift a finger. And yeah, here's out. Here's Marie out there on the stage. She says, "Don't let the sun go down on me." And the censor turns to me and says. I see what you got away with here. <laughs> <laughs> so America got America got to watch Marie Osmond imploring someone not to go down on her. Yep. <laughs> you can follow us on all the various socials. Our website is whythepodcast.com and has all sorts of additional stories and videos. It's also where you can sign up for our newsletter. We're also on YouTube if you're into that kind of thing. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Because if you don't, we'll call your mother and tell her that she's completely right. You would look so much prettier if you smiled more. Why the Podcast is part of Mudhouse Media. Today's show was produced by myself and Heidi Hegquist. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sovey and Sandy Stone. Our willing executive producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our graphic designer is Samantha Mustonen. The theme song was performed by the Electrosynth-O-Magnetic Polyphonic Orchestra. This one's for Philippe. 
Thanks for joining us. Flash, we're coming home. Nigel, is that you? Are you here, Nigel?